Our New Testament reading for today is from 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who, be, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Speed of God. Well, this is our last sermon in the book of Proverbs entitled, Finding Christ in the Proverbs. And our passage this morning is in Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 through 31. And as we read through this section, I want you to really pay very close attention to what we read here. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its field or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was his daily delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man." Father, we do thank you now for this, your word. We pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit that it might guide us and open our minds and our hearts that we might be sanctified by your truth. Your word is truth. Convict us and convince us of its power and may we be transformed by it and leave this place differently than the way we came in. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, to the average Christian, Proverbs may seem unremarkable. A collection, at first glance, a sort of generalized uh, collection of advice about wisdom and wise living. Maybe as we've moved through the book, you've been struck by the same attitude and thought to yourself, how does this have anything to do with God? Couldn't any person, believer or unbeliever, apply its principles and benefit? How is the wisdom here unique? Those are fair questions. After all, some of the Proverbs are an amalgam of wise sayings collected from the ancient Near East. So Solomon indeed was the wisest man who ever lived, but he was also a student of wisdom, which means he collected and gathered wise sayings in the ancient world, which predated the book of Proverbs. 
And it makes sense, doesn't it, that someone like Solomon would gather otherwise sayings because after all, um, all truth is God's truth. If a pagan says, he who jumps off buildings goes splat, we don't say, oh, that's not true, a pagan said it. We say, yeah, that's true. Because all truth is God's truth. And so Solomon gathered and collected. He gave many of his own sayings on wisdom, but he also gathered other sayings of wisdom that were true. However, much of the wisdom in Proverbs is original. And beyond that, there's an interpretive dimension that is added to the book of Proverbs when we read the New Testament. Because it's there in the New Testament that wisdom and the wisdom tradition reemerges not just as an idea, but embodied and incarnate as a person. And this is true about the entire Old Testament in general. The risen Jesus, you may remember, appears to the two disciples in Luke 24 who are walking on the road to Emmaus and their hearts are heavy and Jesus appears to them and tells them, you wouldn't be so sad if you had believed all that the scriptures had foretold because they prophesied about me. And he said the law and the prophets and the Psalms had spoken of him. And that is shorthand for the entire Hebrew Bible. So whenever you read in the New Testament, Jesus or others referring to the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, that's sort of a shorthand way of saying the Bible that existed at that time, which was the Hebrew Bible, which we now call the Old Testament. But in essence, Jesus discloses the entirety of the Old Testament. His message wasn't a break with the law, prophets and writings, but a fulfillment of it. In other words, Jesus reveals the deeper meaning of the Old Testament. And it's not that the Old Testament doesn't make sense on its own. It does, like the first part of any good mystery novel. The story in the beginning makes sense. But as the ending comes closer and the plot is brought to resolution, the first part of the book takes on newer and deeper meaning. Hints or clues unnoticed in the initial reading would be glaringly obvious in a subsequent reading. Good illustration of this is the movie from 1999 with Bruce Willis, The Sixth Sense. Bruce Willis is a psychologist treating a young boy tormented by visions of dead people. We all know the line now, right? I see dead people. But in the meantime, while he's counseling this troubled young kid, he himself has a lot of his own problems he's struggling with, including a growing distance between him and his wife ever since he was almost killed by an intruder. And as it unfolds, the story makes perfect sense to the audience. And so as you're moving through that movie, you don't think this doesn't make any sense. It makes perfect sense. But it takes on new meaning with the revelation at the end that Bruce Willis's character himself is dead. He wasn't almost killed by an intruder. He was killed. 
His estrangement from his wife is not psychological, it's actual. She's alive and he's dead. The plot twist comes as a complete surprise, but once it comes, the audience cannot see the first part of the story with the same understanding. The success of the plot hinges in large part on its making sense with both readings. When Jesus came, the picture of the Old Testament became clearer, and this is true even of the book of Proverbs. Jesus is the wisest man, the son perfectly attuned to the father, the true husband, the perfect worker. These are all subjects we've covered in the last 10 weeks of going through the book of Proverbs. The man who followed God's plans, who knew perfectly how to handle wealth. And the multiplicity of these allusions to wisdom in the person and work of Jesus revealed that he's more than just wise. He is wisdom itself. And to embrace the wisdom found in Proverbs is to enter into a relationship with him. And so I want to focus this morning on just two aspects of Christ that reveal Proverbs in a fuller sense. Jesus as the faithful son and Jesus as the wisdom of God incarnate. Jesus as the faithful son and Jesus as the wisdom of God incarnate. Number one, Jesus as the faithful son. Proverbs 4, verses 1 and 23. Hear, O son, a father's instruction, be attentive that you may gain insight. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. In Proverbs over and over and over again, we're told that a faithful son heeds his father's instruction. In fact, the book itself is written from a father to a son. So it's helpful when you read the book of Proverbs, if you're a woman, to know that it is not excluding women, but the context in which it's written is from a father to a son. And a lot of the wisdom, of course, in the book of Proverbs is universal. You could just flip a lot of it on its head if you're a woman and put it in reverse and it applies to you as well. But uniquely and specifically, there is this aspect that a faithful son heeds his father's instruction, keeps his heart, keeps his heart pure, speaks his father as his father directs, and follows his father's path. And right from the beginning, the New Testament, when we get to the New Testament, it wants to highlight the father-son relationship between Jesus and God. And this is really key when we come to the New Testament, something that we find only hinted at in the Hebrew Bible. Because in the Hebrew Bible, who is God's son? And Israel. So Adam is God's first son. And then later on, it is Israel. In Matthew 3.17, at Jesus' baptism, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. John 6, Jesus said, for I came not to do the will of my father, not to do the will, I came not to do my own will, excuse me, but to do the will 
of my Father who sent me. And as the ideal son of Proverbs, Jesus performs the work his Father gives, especially by giving his life for his people. Now, I grew up, uh, I did not grow up as a Trinitarian. And so I did not have the understanding of what was happening in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And so when I found out that, the, that Jesus, as the Son, came to earth and in his embodied human flesh fulfilled the will and direction of his Father, that radically changed how I understood God. That God is not a single monad, one person putting on three different costumes, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, like Clark Kent going into a phone booth changing outfits. But within God's oneness, there is a tri-unity. God is triune. And so this father-son relationship unpacks two-thirds of God's essence, that the Son comes to fulfill the will of his Father. In John 10, 17, Jesus said, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And this charge I have received from who? From my Father, Jesus says. One of my favorite theologians says, Jesus is a truly noble son. He's the son who grants others the right to become the sons of God. Indeed, he brings many sons to glory with him by tasting death and defeating the one who held death's power. Now the question looming over the text this morning is how do we become faithful sons and daughters? You might think the answer is by being obedient like Jesus. But if that's the criteria, we're all lost. There's no hope for us if the criteria is being obedient like Jesus because we've all gone astray. We all fail, we all fall short, we all miss the mark. And what I'm about to say next is key and I want you to pay very close attention because this is the gospel. We become sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ, God's perfect son. God loves us as faithful, obedient children in his son, Jesus, through faith in him. His faithful sonship counts for us. Some people have never heard that before. Until I heard that, and I had grown up in the church, I had grown up ostensibly as a Christian, I had, I had never heard that before. There was a time in my life where that was radical. That we're counted faithful through our union with Christ, the faithful son. And this is a radical departure from every other world religion of system of morality. It's a radical departure. It is unlike anything else in all of religiondom, if I can put it that way. There's nothing like it. Every other religious system is a system of sort of being, you know, one with God or the gods or the universe through a certain type of moral uh, perfection 
or quality of moral being, and Christianity is a total departure. It's completely different. It says that vicariously, perfect, obedient sonship and obedience to God was accomplished for us on our behalf when we believe in him. Uh, You may have heard this, uh, especially if you grew up in a good church, a good gospel preaching church, where the doctrines of grace were preached, and it may just be like, yeah, thanks for the reminder. But for a lot of us who have never, who didn't grow up with it, like this is like, this is like astonishing. It's life altering stuff, it's earth shattering stuff. That Christ accomplished our righteousness vicariously on our behalf, and the righteousness that God looks at and sees in us is not even our own. It's, not, it's alien. It's, it's like God says, you're, you're not really righteous, but you are. Because of, Je- because of Jesus. Because of your, u- your union with my son, you're righteous. But you're not really righteous. You're sinners. We're sinners. I'm a sinner. But God says, but you're righteous because of Jesus. But you're not really righteous. But you are. You know, t- t- so, you don't, so you don't become a heretic. You have to keep talking. Right? We're sinners, but we're saved by grace. But we're sinners, right? You, this sort of dance, this theological dance. Jesus lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died because of our sin. And he conquers the grave that defeats us all for our sake. For our sake. And if you're exhausted this morning, so here's the application, okay? If you're exhausted this morning because you keep falling short, I just want to say this. It's elementary. Believe the gospel. Because that's what sin does, right? Especially habitual sins, the sins you can't conquer, the nagging pesky sins that every Sunday morning when we close our eyes and do our confession of sin, you keep saying to God, I'm sorry about this. Believe the gospel. If you can't forgive yourself for something you've done, as a Christian, you're not believing the gospel. It is a failure to believe the gospel. Or at the very least, maybe you have forgotten what it means to trust in Christ for your salvation. Maybe you have forgotten what it means to be saved in the first place, to be a Christian in the first place. That you are trusting in the righteousness of someone else that God counts on your behalf. And maybe if someone has offended you and you cannot forgive them, you're not believing the gospel either. Because the forgiveness we have, the forgiveness we've received, the reconciliation we've received, gives us a charge from God and a ministry back out to everyone else around us to share the same love and grace and forgiveness we've received. And when that doesn't happen, when that's not happening in our lives, something is wrong. 
The gospel is not living in us when the grace and mercy and forgiveness that God so lavishly poured out on us is not being lavished on others. Now, there's a reason Jesus gave the parable of the man who had been forgiven 10,000 talents by a king and then takes the person who owes him five and grabs him and throws him in prison because he recognized that our tendency is not to show the grace we've been given by God to other people. That is our tendency. And so that is also a failure to believe and understand the gospel. No matter what your sin, if you confess, repent, and believe, you can know. Now your heart doesn't always give you See, assurance is a funny thing, right? Because the word, the word can promise us that God loves and forgives us in Christ, but our hearts can feel shame for things we've done, and it becomes hard, right? And, and so God's promise to us is, even if your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. I went to bed last night thinking of something I did to another kid in seventh grade, and I felt such horrible shame. And it's really weird, I, I don't say this as like, I, like here I am, I'm 45 years old, and I'm, I'm, sins of my past are hitting me really hard. And it's not that I don't feel God forgives me, but I feel the weight of them. Like, like the light of God's love shines on things I've done with such a clarity to reveal how much I've been forgiven. I was, it was the seventh grade, it was my first year of middle school back in California at the time. Middle school was seventh grade to ninth grade. And I remember there was an instigator kid, I didn't know it at the time that kids did this, a kid named Hans. And he said, uh, Peter says he can beat you up. And it was an art class, this Peter kid was this quiet, little, timid, you know. And I was a pretty quiet guy and I was like, what? He said he could beat me up and God forbid in middle school anyone thought that, you know, you weren't tough or something, at least that was how I grew up. And <clears throat> after class, um, after a couple days of that, um, I decided, because I had been beat up several times in elementary school, it was just, I don't know, maybe it was the kind of neighborhood I grew up in, I decided I was gonna make a name for myself in school, and as he was walking down the hallway, I came up beside him and I hit him. That's the sanitized version of that story. And um, I got suspended, I hit him you know, hard. And you know he ducked in for cover, and they broke it up, and I got suspended. And uh, you know my mom was shocked, um, and I found out later that his parents enrolled him in boxing classes. And um, he he was hurt, probably embarrassed, ashamed, and at the time I didn't know how to process it. I think I felt bad, but I feel worse at 45 years old about it. And like the gospel, the Holy Spirit is not telling me you're not forgiven. The Holy Spirit is telling me, look what I forgave you for. Look what I saved you and redeemed you from. Because like I look at that person, I'm like, what a horrible human being I was because I did stuff like that. And I have to remind myself of the gospel's promises that the righteousness of Christ, I've become a better person, but that's not why I'm saved. I have, I have become, a, I've become like a, a decent person, you know? I just mean like, you know, I try to like follow the rules and like obey laws. But, but that's not why I'm saved. And that's not why God accepts me. God accepted me then and now, even though I've changed as a person, 
because of the obedience of Jesus Christ, the perfect son. And so if I am a son and you are a son and daughter of God, it is not because you're a good person, you obey the rules, and you've become a pretty good person. It's because of Jesus. It's because of his righteousness. And so when you feel convicted and condemned of the things you've done, rejoice that you're forgiven, that God saved you from those things, in spite of those things, because of his love for you in Christ. Hallelujah. And in that way, Christ reveals Proverbs in a fuller sense. But secondly, we understand Proverbs deeper when we realize that Christ Jesus is the wisdom of God incarnate. This is number two. He's the wisdom of God incarnate. Even before Jesus begins his ministry, we see evidence of the gospel writer's interest in him as a wise person. Luke says he grew physically, but also, Luke 2 and 40, and verse 52, with wisdom beyond his years. At 12 years old, Jesus and his family went to, on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover, and he got lost. Parents, if you've ever lost a kid at the zoo or something, the frantic panic you feel when your kid is missing, Jesus like got lost. I mean, he wasn't lost, but Mary and Joseph thought he was lost, and they found him in the temple. And he was teaching, having deep discussions about the Bible and theology with the religious leaders, and it says he was discussing deep questions with them, and they were, get this, you ready for this? They were astonished at his answers. The highest holy day in all of Israel, the most qualified theologians of the land are in the temple, and a 12-year-old is teaching them. He wasn't just a child prodigy. He was Jesus, the Son of God. And the New Testament wants us to see that from very early on, he embodied a kind of wisdom that had never been seen before. And in Mark 2, they asked, where did this man get all his wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? At one point, Jesus, when he was struggling with the religious leaders who rejected his wisdom, you know what he said? This, this will really bake your noodle. He says to them, the queen of Sheba, Jesus gets frustrated that the religious leaders don't accept his wisdom. He says, the queen of Sheba, you remember the queen of Sheba who went to Solomon to learn of all his wisdom with hard questions and riddles and Solomon, you know, knocked it out the park. The queen of Sheba will rise against this generation in judgment and condemn it. For she came from a distant land to hear the wisdom of Solomon and now someone greater than Solomon is here and you refuse to listen to him. Right? But perhaps, now those are, those are some proof texts to talk about the wisdom of Jesus, his embodiment of wisdom, but perhaps nothing is more profound and eloquent than the connection between Proverbs 8 and Colossians 1. Listen to this. Listen to what Proverbs 8 says about wisdom, and then I'm going to read what Colossians says about Jesus. Now, I don't like putting tons of text up on the screen for you to read through like a book. I, I don't like when people do it, and I don't like to do it, but in this case, I'm going to make an exception because I want you just like to, you know, turn your thinking caps on and just read every word of what I'm about to read on the screen here, because this is powerful. Proverbs 8, 22. 
The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundation of the earth, God that is, then, and back then, I was beside him, like a master workman, and I was his daily delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Now look at Colossians 1, 15 through 17. Paul writes, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For a first century Jew, Familiar with their Bible, this would have been such a direct allusion to Proverbs 8 that the message would have been astonishingly clear that Jesus is the embodiment of God's wisdom. Not only that, but the message they would have taken away, and we should too, is this. To embrace wisdom is to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And when you know this, and you see this in the New Testament, you can never read Proverbs the same way again. You'll see Jesus in every chapter of the book. Jesus is the wise son who makes his father glad, the true faithful husband, the perfect worker, the loyal friend, the man who followed God's plans to a T and who knew how to handle wealth. And if Jesus is all of those things, and we're united to him and his attributes by faith, then his righteousness is ours. His wisdom is ours. Our lifelong response then is to live out lives, wise lives, wisely lived lives in gratitude and thankfulness to him. If you haven't fully put your hope and trust in Jesus, today is the day of salvation for you. Because it's different to fully trust in him for salvation than to know about him. And if you haven't done that, trust in him today and live. Let's pray, Father thank you we thank you, O oh God, for your grand plan of redemption, the master plan throughout the ages in which you established your bloodline in the earth, established your lordship through mediators and a covenant and a people and your son, who is the fulfillment of it all. Father. We thank you now and pray, O oh God, that we would, in gratitude, 
For the righteousness we receive because of your perfect son, by faith, help us, O God, to live wise lives. Lives that glorify and honor you in all that you do, all that we do, by your power, empowered by the spirit of Jesus and the Holy Spirit living in us, may we please you like wise and faithful sons and daughters. In Christ's name we pray, amen.